Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola and uh, from the Sensual Medicine Podcast. And today, today you have the domestiques. You have me and I'm with my friend, Andrew Foy, who's an uh, academic cardiologist and educator at Penn State University in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Our team leaders, Adam Sifu, Vinay Prasad, are missing in action. So, Andrew, thanks for joining us for the Sensible Medicine Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Today, we've got three topics, and I'd like to do maybe 15, 20 minutes each. First topic is that Andrew is and I were co-authors on the medical conservative piece in the American Journal of Medicine. People ask me about what does it mean to be a medical conservative? Is it political? What is it? What does it mean? And in this podcast, Andrew had this beautiful explanation and he brought in um, the notion of a vision, uh, much like Thomas Sowell's uh, Conflict of Visions book, where he discussed the constrained and unconstrained visions. Second topic is this amazing trial published in New England Journal of Medicine, May 24th, early versus late anticoagulation for stroke with atrial fibrillation. The specific issue of, of stroke and anticoagulation was not the important point. The important point was how these authors presented their results to the medical community. And it's really, really important. And I think uh, paradigm shifting perhaps and the third topic I want to talk to Andrew about is there's this brouhaha on Twitter, med Twitter, and in social media about residents going on strike and giving fair, fair pay to residents for their work. And since Andrew's an educator and deals with uh, residents and fellows at this moment, and I'm kind of an old dude who's been out in private practice for a while, I really want to get his view on... Uh, fair fairness to residents and fellows. So Andrew, welcome and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. All right. All right. First topic is this medical conservative business. So we, uh, I have in my Twitter bio that I'm a medical conservative. We wrote this, we wrote this piece a number of years ago after, after we were basically kind of uh, scolded for being uh, uh, critics of a study. And, you know, people ask me, John, what does it mean to be a medical conservative? But you were on a recent podcast and really, you know, had this amazing uh, explanation of what it meant. And you brought in Thomas Sowell's really famous book, The Conflict of Visions, where he talked about an unconstrained and a constrained vision. And so uh, let, let's just talk about medical conservatism and and how you uh, view our approach to, to medicine. Sure. So I think that ultimately for me, uh, being a medical conservative, uh, means being, uh, a skeptic about, about new interventions. And I sort of put the burden of proof uh, on those on those interventions to from my standpoint to prove that that they are beneficial and mainly that they're beneficial for for the individual patient and that it's not just uh sort of us the medical profession sort of doing things to people 
that we profit from that don't really make much of a difference. Um, I think ultimately my bias to be a medical conservative comes from my own bias as a person um, to really not want to be messed with very much. Um, and if I'm going to do something from a medical standpoint, uh, I want there to be a pretty good possibility that it's going to benefit, that it's going to benefit me. Uh, or if I was thinking from the standpoint of like my family or friends, that it was going to benefit, that it was going to benefit them. Um, and that the likelihood of, of benefit is significantly greater than the likelihood of, of harm. Um, and so to me, I mean, that's what being a medical conservative ultimately is about. Um, there's other issues involved when it comes to like from a public health perspective. Uh, it, but ultimately to me, it comes down to like the individual patient. Is this something that if I was fully informed and I had a total understanding of what the likelihood of benefits and harms would be, uh, is it something that I would want to do? Um, and so, you know, my bias is that I wouldn't want to do a whole lot unless there was a really good chance I was going to be, I was going to benefit from it. And so that, that to me is, is what being a medical conservative is. Um, and I, I guess the opposite of that would be sort of like, somebody who might be more progressive from a medical standpoint and they would want to do something uh, if there was really like any possibility of benefiting even in a small regard. Um, and I think that's, that's something we talked about on that podcast a lot. And so I don't know, does that address your question? Yeah. So, so what I, what helped me resolve Help me resolve this tension between, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you handle the tension between new things that have clearly uh, improved um, care, right? So the incidence of the incidence of cardiovascular events, especially after a heart attack, have gone down. Uh, the incidence of of stroke after initial stroke has gone down. There's this been this temporal change in 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 fewer cardiac events. Uh, so we've made we've made progress in my field of electrophysiology. We've had these you know iterative improvements in technology that have that have made us better at doing things. Uh, an SVT ablation used to take five hours when I started, and now it's often under an hour. So there's there's clearly a there's clearly improvements, and you want to adopt you want to adopt things. But on the other hand, um, there there's also also new things that are promoted as as sort of beneficial, but are not so. So how do you how do you resolve that tension? And and then maybe you know maybe we need to get into how it applies to sort of your 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 interest in Austrian economics. Economics, where where you know uh, Hayek's view and 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 Thomas Sowell's view. I mean, how does it how does that play into it? So 
you know, from from my standpoint, you know, making a, a decision uh, in anything related to medical care has to do with like, what is the likelihood of benefit and what is the likelihood of, of harm? And I think the reality is that most of the things we do, the most likely uh, possibility is that we're not going to make any difference, right? And yep. so that's that's something that I don't think a lot of people really appreciate. So given that the likelihood, the most common scenario is that we're not going to make any difference. And then it's like on the margins, are you more likely to to help somebody or to hurt them? Uh, those things come into account. And then there's, of course, like the disutility of, of the thing itself, like whether it's taking a pill, you know, every day, whether it's going through a procedure that, you know, regardless of the outcome, it's still unpleasant. Like you have to take time off of work, you got to, you know, or if you're not working, you still have to go, go to the hospital and have this thing be done to you. Um, I think those things <clears throat> to me are really important and they make a big difference. And from like a psychological standpoint, I'm, I'm a fairly like risk tolerant person. And so I don't, I don't want to do a lot of things that are going to like mess with me or that I'm going to have to mess with if there's not a really good likelihood that I'm going to benefit. Like, I just, I don't want to do that. Like there's, there's more to life, you know, like you started this podcast talking about we're a bunch of domestiques, meaning like we're riding, you know, bicycling and any day when we go out for a bike ride you could like get hit by a car and get killed i mean we, we obviously don't want that to happen but we accept that possibility like we do a lot of things like to live our lives uh and to enjoy them and it's like when you think about like what are the margins of like benefit and and risk from like a medical perspective for the things that we're doing like they're, they're very small, you know, like, and when it just comes to like, do I want to do that to like, do I want to go through that? Um, I think a lot of people don't, you know, like, and so like, for me, I'm one of those people, like, I don't want to do that. You know, like I, I, you know, I, that's just not something that I'm interested in as a person. Like, it's not something that a lot of people in my family are interested in. And so like when, as a physician, the what that's how I practice, you know, like, I don't really want to be putting people through these things that are going to either be a significant inconvenience to them, that are going to cost them a significant amount more than they otherwise would. Like, if there's not a significant, you know, if there's not like a real likelihood that they're going to genuinely benefit from that a lot. And so like, to me, that is sort of like the essence of being a medical conservative, and I guess the the opposite to that is like, I want to do, I really want to do things like if they're not more likely to hurt me, if there's even like a small possibility that they could help, like I want to do that, like, and, and I'm not going to be happy unless I do that. And so like, to me, those are sort of like, those are two very opposite visions. They're both of them are valid. They're one's not right. And one's not wrong. Um, you know, to me, like I'm obviously on the, the conservative side of the spectrum. Like, I don't want to be messed with. I don't want, I don't want to mess with my family. I don't want people messing with my family or my friends, uh, unless that's what they want, you know? But again, like to me, like, that's not what those people want. Um, and so sort of like the essence of being a physician 
is is sort of like knowing, you know, like what does that person want and sort of providing them care that's concordant with with those preferences. And and you've studied this more than me, but isn't it true that sort of Hayek had this view that the the way that was sorted out was with with in the market, in the totally free market, prices would determine that. And there was nobody's hand on the scale, but we don't really have that in healthcare. So how um how how do you how do you how do you sort through this sort of minimizer maximizer? Because there's no there's no like free market where if if patients if persons it's not like buying shoes where where if you really like the shoes you'll pay more. It's like not like buying a bike if you really like the bike you'll pay more. But we don't really have that so. How do you how do you sort of jive that with where where we're at? Because I'm in the same tension you are. I I I look at some of these things and I'm like, the most likely outcome is no difference. And so I lean towards, you know, not doing anything and and uh you know, keeping the status quo, so-called conservative views. You know, how how do you how do you how do you work through that in your head in medicine? No, I mean it's a great question. I, I mean, I, I think you have to take, you know, every every person differently on an individual basis. You know, like what what do you think that they want? Um, and you know, I mean, I, this is where I think that like real shared decision making comes into play. Right. Um, I think it really does serve uh, an important role. Um, but like, also, I think that just like, you know, you can sort of tell, I mean, I, I had a patient that I saw, you know, earlier this week and I mean, this guy, he's, he's like classic. I I've known him for almost 15 years. He, oh, you know, he, he was like a gym teacher in, uh, that, that he was, he was a gym teacher. And like he takes like a tremendous pride in the fact that like throughout his life, he, you know, he like he exercised every day. He loved doing activities. So I've known this guy for close to 15 years. He's had chronic systolic heart failure and he, you know, he never whenever it came to like medical therapy, he didn't feel very good when it came to things. And so we always erred on the side of like doing less ultimately i've managed this guy with like literally digoxin for the last almost 10 years not one other medicine other than digoxin he probably has cardiac amyloidosis although the diagnosis was never totally confirmed he's had like severe aortic stenosis for the last five years we haven't done anything he's 92 years old like the guys lived to like the fullest of his life. And, you know, he might live another like year or two. I, I don't know, but he really, from like a standpoint of like cardiac therapies, he wasn't really interested in like doing a whole lot. You know, like we, we stopped doing echocardiograms seven years ago because it didn't matter. He, he you know, he didn't want to taver then. I'm sure he doesn't want to taver now. I'm not going to ask him again. You know, like he didn't want an ICD for primary prevention like 13 years ago. Like, I'm not going to keep asking him. His ejection fraction is 20%. 
Like, and he's lived a really good life. He's 92 now. And he's like, hey, I might die any day, but I feel, you know, I feel really good, right? About about everything in my life. And so it's sort of like he, as a patient, he's a like a true medical conservative. Like he really didn't want to be messed with. Like he always wanted the less is more sort of approach. And that's what we did. And, you know, it's 15, 14, 15 years later and whatever, like, you know, like he's doing great. I mean, I, I don't really know if I could have benefited him anymore from doing a workup for amyloidosis, you know, five or six years ago, probably not. I mean, what are you really going to get out of, you know, to Famitus at this point? But, um, so that's him, but, you know, I have other patients that are different from that. And you, and you need to just sort of like sense that and ultimately try to provide patients like care that's concordant with, with what they want. And, and ultimately I think that the majority of people tend to actually fall more on the conservative side of the spectrum. Right. I mean, and this is like where the medical maximizer minimizer thing comes into play, but like Laura share and her team, like their research has always sort of found that, you know, like, uh, like the bell shaped curve, like the midpoint tends to fall more closer to the minimizers than the maximizers, you know, like, and I believe that, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, uh, so many people that I know are, are more on the one side of the minimizer than the other. And for me personally, I happen to fall quite, you know, quite far to the left of the one side. And it's sort of like being a doctor is providing people with, with care that's concordant with what they want. And I hate the fact that as conservative physicians, we seem to be like losing, but like, we're not really losing, you know, like people, like if, if 50% or 60% or 40% of people want conservative medical care, like that's the right care for them. Right. But everything is sort of pushing us to like the other side. Right. And the, the, what's pushing us is like the profit motive of, of healthcare. And like, that's pretty hard to fight against because we don't, you know, our side doesn't really, you know, I mean, well, the thumb is just not on, on the side of doing nothing, right? The medical industrial complex, this isn't a negative thing, but like they don't benefit by people doing less. They benefit by people doing more. That I mean, that's just, that that's what it is, right? And, and this but, is where, this is where I was so interested in your comment about a vision, you know, because because in the conflict of visions, you you have this vision, this unconstrained view where if we just do everything right, if we just have this moral compass, if we just do more, then we can we can improve outcomes. And it's it's almost like uh, the heart failure community, the EP community, the interventional community, their their sort of unconstrained vision, like we need to do more, 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 and we can make these differences because. In studies, when you study thousands of patients, the average effect is a little bit better. But, you know, uh, also in these guideline documents, it always says that you need to align care with patients' goals. And and what you're talking about is aligning the care with the goals. And, and, and this patient that you describe and many of my patients, they have more of a constrained vision. They're like, okay, 
you know, I realize that the most likely outcome is that nothing's going to be different and and um they're they're sort of minimizers. But I I really appreciate this, you know, it's the 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 unconstrained, the people who want to do everything, they have the industry backing, they have the professional societies and the guidelines and the key opinion leaders and the conservative physicians who who will do those things. I do those things and put people on all these medicines in patients who I think will benefit and who want that. Uh, but, but, but also many patients don't, and that's the reality. And so there's the tension. And I think that's the connection between, uh, I, I think, I think sort of the unconstrained and constrained visions of what medicine can do. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you laid it out very nicely. I mean, for patients that want everything, we can do everything. I mean, like the the doing everything isn't a matter of like we lack the knowledge or sophistication or, you know, like we, we get it. Like, I know, I know SGLT2 inhibitors have been beneficial in the clinical trials. And Tresto is another story, you know, but we'll, <laughs> we can, we can talk about that another day, but like, we get it. Like we know the things that have been shown to be beneficial in clinical trials. And we, I think appropriately question the external validity of a lot of these things, even if we don't question the internal validity of the trials themselves. Wait, and, external and validity means what? External validity means if you take the thing that you're doing in the clinical trial that was found to be a benefit in the clinical trial, would it actually be beneficial in the real world settings? And I think that that is probably like the most significant blind spot in all of medicine right now is the difference between clinical trials and the benefit that people would accrue in real world settings. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's like the biggest blind spot in all of medicine, definitely within cardiology, but I, I don't think cardiology is an outlier. I think it's probably within all of, all of medicine. I, if anything, cardiology is probably better just because, you know, I think in general, the field tends to be a leader in clinical trials and, and in evidence-based medicine. So this isn't, you know, a criticism of cardiology per se. It's just, you know, it's sort of just like an insight into like, clinical trials in general and and how they benefit people outside of clinical trial settings but but also i want to close and talk to go to second topic but but also i mean i think that i i think that the the application of clinical trial data to the patients we're, we we are both i think see eye to eye and are conservative but on the other hand it's also important for us to know that and to say that without clinical trials, we wouldn't really know, I mean, what an, what an average effect would be. I mean, a clinical trial is a special circumstance, right? They enroll patients who are able to be enrolled, who can come to clinic visits. There's nurses, research nurses, and it's a really special environment. Patients are usually robust without too many other issues going on. But at least clinical trials give us an average effect in a situation. Yeah, oh, no doubt. I mean, I would never. Yes, I mean, I'm not one of those people that says that evidence-based medicine is is like worthless. We can't know anything about the individual patient. I mean, if 
clinical trials. Yeah, I mean, my my only criticism is that we don't do enough and we don't enroll enough patients that are um, reflective of the general population. But, you know, I mean, whose responsibility is that? Who should lead those sort of things? I mean, what is the role of industry once they already show sort of like proof of efficacy? Like this isn't a criticism of those things. It, it's simply just, you know, in the real world, like we have our data from clinical trials, which is incredibly important. Like it's invaluable, but like, does it apply to people that wouldn't have been enrolled in those clinical trials? I mean, that that's the issue from my standpoint. Exactly. All right. Second topic. Second topic is this ALON trial. Early versus late anticoagulation in patients who've had stroke due to atrial fibrillation. And this was a trial, a very unconflicted trial, right? No industry, no dualities of interest. Industry's not promoting a drug. This is one simple question of do we start anticoagulants early or do we wait a week or two and start them late? And the trial, the trial was done um, uh, in Europe, and they basically just randomized patients post-stroke to early versus late anticoagulation. And they found uh, they randomized 2,000 patients, so a lot of patients, about a thousand gets get early anticoagulation, a thousand get later. Uh, a primary outcome is this composite of everything bad that can occur. So things that are bad that can occur are due to uh, more strokes. So recurrent ischemic stroke, a blood clot somewhere else, we call systemic embolism. And then the other bad thing that can happen from anticoagulation is bleeding. So bleeding in the brain, bleeding outside the brain. And the other bad thing that can happen is you can die of cardiovascular causes. And so I'll just read it. Um, a primary outcome event occurred in 2.9% of the early treatment versus 4.1 of the later treatment, they 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 uh, expressed that difference as a risk difference, 1.2 percentage better, but the 95% confidence intervals went from 2.8% better to 0.5% worse. Now, if this were a normal trial, they would they would run statistical uh, tests on this, and they would say that because there was a because there was a hazard greater than one, that this was non-significant, they would calculate a p-value, which is basically the surprise value, and the conclusions would read that early versus late in-stroke, uh, into early versus late anticoagulation in post-stroke patients, there was no difference. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. What happened is they didn't tell us the p-value. All they say in the conclusions is that the incidence of the primary outcome, recurrent stroke, embolism, extracranial bleeding, intracranial bleeding, or vascular death at 30 days was estimated to range from 2.8 percentage points lower to 0.4 percentage points higher, period. That's it. That's all we get. So I'm just shocked that this is in the New England Journal of Medicine because I've really not seen this basically in my whole career. Initial thoughts. Now, so so this is like one of those studies where, you know, like I read it, I was sort of like shocked by it. And I kind of wondered, 
like are the are the investigators you know like are they geniuses or are they idiots <laughs> like maybe you should give them like the benefit of the doubt like it is in the new england journal of medicine right and so like you know to me to d conduct like a scientific study you need to test a hypothesis it's it's not clear to me that these people actually tested a hypothesis this was very much like a randomized observational study so should this maybe then lay the groundwork for like a hypothesis testing trial in the future and i just i you know and look and, and i do think like from my standpoint you know like when i think of like questions that are like of significance in medicine this isn't really something that was on my radar you know like was it on your radar you mean the question of early versus late anticoagulation yes no 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 i i think that's a yeah no i, I it wasn't on my radar right so so then i'm like all right i mean but 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 it does come up i mean no no, I, no, I, no I i agree with you it does come up but like you know like i guess i'm not for me as like a physician i'm not usually the person that's like making the final decision on something like that so like maybe maybe it is more of like a primary question for like neurologists or something like that i don't know but so that like my first question was like how important is this but then two is it is it is this one of those things where like the equipoise is like so much that like nobody has a clue like is it really just so and and like i think that there's probably some legitimacy to that like the people have such so little of a clue that like they needed to do this sort of like randomized observational study so they could like get a clue and test a hypothesis in the future. And that's sort of like how I think of this study. Now, do I think it, you know, like, should it have been in like a, the, a top tier medical journal? You know, like, no, but I don't even know what counts as far as any of that stuff goes anymore. Like who knows, but I sort of feel like that that's like the issue here. Like did me, did really like nobody had a clue what the right answer was. And they felt like it was important enough to do this study to sort of like get a clue. And that, <laughs> I mean, that's sort of how I view the, the results of this study. Like I, they, I, I wouldn't, I would not, I would not use this study to say that we should basically like we should, we should, practice based on the results of this study what i would say was this is like a really good observational study and we should do a like a a genuine like hypothesis testing study next based on these results like if it really does if like early anticoagulation you know like correct me if i'm wrong like i think the benefit was like a one point a, like a one percentage point difference ultimately like then we need the power like a proper clinical trial with like that as our, as our presumption for going forward in like a true hypothesis testing study. But, but on the other hand, okay, I get you, I get you. But, but I, I went to the rationale paper because I was kind of interested in what their thoughts were. And a couple things from the, from the rationale paper, they said that although we propose a different analytical approach that often seen in clinical trials, this should not hinder interpretation of trial data or their clinical utility. And so, and then they say, we also believe, get this, 
The complexity of managing patients with AFib early on after an ischemic stroke precludes simplified dichotomous decision-making and necessitates some leeway for individual decision-making. So part of me says, holy shit, this is amazing because they're telling physicians to be grown up and mature and apply this data, this confidence interval, which mostly was beneficial but could be harmful, to the patients in front of them. And maybe if you had a patient, and this is post-stroke, but this could be oncology, this could be ER, this could be ICU, it could be anything. But what they're saying is to, to take this effect size and these conference intervals in this trial setting and apply it to the patient in front of you, rather than saying the P is 0.06, it's no difference, which is, I think, crazy. No, so I guess I, I I differ with you a bit on that. Like, um, I think that like when interventions are tested in clinical trials, the effect size represents like the the best case scenario, right? And so I think that if if the effect size isn't that for any particular reason, which I think in a real world setting, like I always sort of, I have this gestalt, which is like in the real world setting, you should always like decrease the effect size by half and increase the risk, like the risk or the harms by, by two, double, you know, like, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not right, but like, that's sort of just my gestalt when it comes to these things. And so, you know, if this, this would not have met, statistical significance from like a frequentist standpoint in a true clinical trial and so you know to me it's like that that's the best case scenario so if it didn't do that why do i necessarily think it would be better uh in a real world setting and i and i guess you know just for me like my my just thought is that it wouldn't but the, the things that sort of like give me some pause there is like the investigators didn't really, you know, there was no axe to grind is not the right word, but like they, they weren't like, they didn't necessarily benefit from showing that like you, you patients do better if they get started on anticoagulation at two days versus four, right? Like there's not like some big pharmaceutical, company that's gonna that that's really like oh this is amazing like two days it doesn't matter you know so i do think you know like there was no nothing to gain by showing that one of these strategies was better than the other from like an, an industry or a marketing standpoint or anything like that but at the same time i'm still quite skeptical just because of the way it was done uh, I mean, I, thing, I, you know, I mean, you, you have to test a hypothesis, right? They didn't test a hypothesis. Yeah, they say that. Okay, uh, uh, I'm going to tell you about the hazard ratio, the relative risk. But they actually, they actually says this. They actually say that 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 when we designed the trial, there was a lack of high quality data on event rates in the setting, making it difficult to identify an appropriate non inferiority margin. The assumed low event rate would require a very large trial to assess either superiority or non-inferiority, and this would not necessarily provide greater clarity concerning patient management. So what I, the translation of that for me is that 
they're like, we don't really know how to power this trial. So we're going to enroll 2000 and we're just going to, we're going to see what happens. And, and to be honest, Andrew, I mean, a lot of clinical trials estimate these event rates and it's just like, they're pulling it out of their butt. They don't really know. And it ends up being an underestimate. And then if the trial comes out non-significant, well, they can just say it's underpowered. But, 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 you know, I would, I, I guess I would push back a little bit against Please. that, which would be like, they estimate these, these event rates, which is like, for this thing to be worth a damn, it needs to at least be this good. Right. And so if it's not this good, then it's not worth a damn. And so I, I do think that that's sort of where those like rough relative risk reductions come from that oftentimes these, these trials are based on, you know, like if it, if this thing doesn't reduce non-fatal events by 30% and we're already working on like an absolute difference of like one or 2%, then it's definitely not worth a damn, you know, like at the end of the day, like we can't, we can't power a clinical trial to show that, that something reduces the absolute risk of something by a 10th of a percent, right? Like nobody would care about that. Right. Okay. Right. So, right. so like the, that's, I think that's where these things come from. And, and that's why this trial is particularly interesting. Um, which is like, okay, so we, we found this difference. It's like an absolute difference of a percent, you know, there's a good chance it's real. There's, you know, there's a, a slight chance, I suppose that it's not, but like at the end of the day, as practitioners or as, as clinicians, like it's the difference of starting like an anti, you know, an anticoagulant at, at two versus four days. Right. Right. So, okay. Right. Like I don't, I I'm, I'm fine. I can, I I'm fine. I'll start it at two days. I don't give it, I don't care. But, but uh, <laughs> the, the other honest thing about this trial, I mean, it's so exemplary, right? In the abstract and in the conclusions, they present the absolute risk reduction, which is modest at like 1.2%. Yeah. But in the, in the results, when they, when you calculate a relative risk uh, reduction, a hazard ratio, the point estimate is 0. 0.70. So this is a, uh, this is a 30% reduction. Now the conference intervals go from as low as 0. 0.44. So more than a 50% reduction in really bad outcome to as high as uh, 14% higher, 1.14. So again, if you if you take the normal way of approaching a study like this, the difference is the the, the answer is there's no difference. But if you do, you know, uh, Bayesian probability, and you and you look, what's the 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 probability of it being better than better in being beneficial versus harm is greater. So a physician can can take this data, and they can say, okay, if I have a patient post stroke who seems lower risk. Uh, uh, we can start anticoagulation earlier. If I have this patient who's, you know, has more you know, low platelet count or some reason to have high bleeding risk, then we can, uh, we can be more conservative. And so uh, to me, what, what really attract the positive, I, I've got some negatives about this, but the positive is that I hate these guideline documents that just put things in boxes and tell us do this uh, and, and, it might be a one level recommendation or a two or a two B, but 
they they simplify medicine in these colored boxes, and I want to push back on that. And I like the idea of giving us uh, a ninety five percent conference intervals over a point estimate in a trial. Well, so yeah, I mean, you're, I'm not going to argue about that. I mean, pushing back against these guideline documents, I'm a hundred percent for it. Um, and so, if what this study tells us is that you know, we really don't know. There's a chance of benefit that's small. There's a chance of harm. It's really small, you know, like, and ultimately it's a wash. So do what you think is best. I'm not opposed to that. Okay. I mean, I mean, I'm not opposed to that at all. I, I wish that, you know, I wish that when it came to uh, GDMT for patients with like a new diagnosis of heart failure, like that exactly. was the way... I, I mean, like, you know, I wish that was the way that we did things, but it's not. And so I'm not going to argue about that. Well, that's exactly my point, is that if we apply this to other things that, you know, we, we, we you, when you say GDMT, you mean goal-directed medical therapy of heart failure, where, you know, we might have a drug that, that has a similar point estimate, but instead of the the upper bound of the conference, it'll being 14% worse, it might be 0.99. So it's really a similar kind of effect. We have a little bit more precision of the effect, but it's it's not that much different. And But we don't have as much leeway because it made significance and now it's in the guidelines. Yeah, no. All right. All right. Exactly Here's right. It made significance in, in a trial that was sort of like designed to show benefit and and that in every you know in every sense you know the benefit of the doubt was given to was given to the intervention group and you know it it did show a benefit nobody is trying to suggest that like that some sort of like foul play or anything like that but in the real world it's totally different there's a really good chance that like it's not going to benefit and there's all the, you know, these increased likelihood of harm for, you know, 10 different reasons that weren't really present in the clinical trial. Otherwise the patients wouldn't have been included in the first place. No, I'm totally with you. Okay. And, and, but my pushback on this trial and the more I've thought about it and I've slept on it, and I think, I think, okay, they enrolled 2000 patients, but this, this approach is is almost like a invitation to do underpowered trials. And the, and the problem with an underpowered trial is if you don't enroll enough patients, then you're experimenting on humans. And if you don't have a chance of showing benefit, then you're it's not really an ethical thing. So I wouldn't want I wouldn't want this to be a a a license to do, oh, we're just gonna study a thousand patients, even though we need to study five thousand patients. And if you look at these conference intervals. It almost seems to me that if they had enrolled 500 or 750 more patients, they might have had a, a tighter, more precise estimate. So what what do you think about that whole notion? Well, I mean, it's it's a good point, right? But I guess ultimately it comes down to the fact that this this was an area where there's genuine uncertainty and whether physicians in practice start anticoagulation at two days or four days or six days or eight days doesn't really matter like nobody is necessarily benefiting from like uh 
no yeah i mean there there's no benefit to be gained from that like if you're the pharmaceutical company who's selling the drug right and so if this is genuinely just we don't know we don't know what's best we didn't know what was best like yesterday and today getting the information with this trial we still don't necessarily know what's best but we might be a little bit closer to the truth like i'm okay with that because i think that's that's really where this trial like i think that that's where this trial comes from right it's like we we just we had no clue we had no clue yesterday we you know we have a little bit better of a clue today and there's not like any big winners in this in terms of like you know now there's some company that's going to make a bazillion dollars off of off of like you know all of us because this trial was positive you know i can live with that i mean i i still think it would be better to test a hypothesis and hopefully they do that but like there wasn't there there wasn't any hypothesis nobody knew you know like and how many things are like that in medicine there's a not lot. even a hypothesis to test right like i have a i have a thought you have a thought every other person has a thought and like you know we don't know we really don't know what's that 80 percent of like medicine Exactly. Well, of course, so, so you better you better like your doctor and you better hope that like if you're a medical conservative, they're a medical conservative or or vice versa. And if they're not, at least they appreciate the difference and still try to do what you want. Right. This would be a huge problem, though. This approach would be a huge problem if it was a regulatory trial and whether 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 well, somebody like, had to decide. Yeah, to you're, put... you're right. You're you're 100 percent right. But this isn't a regulatory issue. Right. 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 right? Right, but regulatory issues turn into turn into standard of care and practice patterns and 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 that business, even though there's still uncertainty amongst these amongst these benefits, especially when you translate that trial to the real world, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. All right. Third topic. Third topic. This is a hot potato, but I want to get your view. So, on social media, uh, on social media, there's this debate. Uh, there's the there's a there's a movement among some uh, young people, interns, residents to go on strike to get better pay, better benefits, child care, better life, uh, uh, these kinds of things. And um, uh, there's been a couple of voices, uh, one surgeon in particular, who's basically uh, been against that. And there's sort of uh, uh, he's sort of going against the grain and. You're an educator. You teach young people every day. Uh, I have this. Uh, my biases. Oh. I have this amazing. I had this amazing training in Indiana, uh, where I had all these mentors. It was like the glory days of cardiology, and I feel like I do about my math teachers in high school and my history teachers. I have this sort of religious reverence for my teachers at Indiana, and I I feel like. I feel like I should pay them rather than them have paid me. And so I don't, uh, my view may not be indicative of the current state. So, I mean, how, how, how do you feel about interns and residents going on strike and, and how we should be treating these young people? Yeah. That pauses Andrew I mean, thinking about what he wants to say. <laughs> I love you, man uh like you you just love you 
you're such a I mean, I don't know that I have like this religious uh deference to the people that taught me at, at different levels of my life. I feel like they got paid, right? Like I think uh I think they got paid. So I don't feel like I need to I need to pay them more or they, they should have got paid more than they did. That being said, uh I you know, like as a resident, I feel like I I was an employee. I got paid. Um at the end of the day, like the ultimate decision to do things wasn't mine. And, you know, I was doing work, but I wasn't the ultimate decision maker. And I was learning during that process. And I feel like, you know, I got paid. Was it like, was it exactly the right amount? You know, I don't know. But there's a lot of people that like do shitty jobs and get paid a lot less. And, you know, I don't I it's it's just part of the process. Um, I don't feel like I was abused in any way, you know, and I don't feel like it in any sense, like the residents that work with me now are are like abused in any way. Like, I think they got like. I don't know, you know, like I think they got good lives as as residents and they're going to like put in their dues. And once once that's over, you know, they're going to have a good career and, um, you know, and then when they're the people that like ultimately the buck stops with them, they're going to make a lot more money and that'll be reasonable. But, but I, I mean, you know, I don't. You I have know, a, you know? you, I, I like your view and you've taught me a lot about your view because we've talked about this a lot. And, and I, I sort of, I sort of still hold, hold uh, that it's really a, a, it's sort of a, a, a special thing. And, and um, that is me practicing medicine and learning to craft and, and having mentors who really uh, taught you uh, an approach to things. Um, and, and you have a view, I think, that is more, um, I don't want to say utilitarian, but more like it's a great job. We help people. But at the end of the day, it's a job. And I don't know. I I, I think we, we, we might we might see it a little different. No, no, I think I think that's totally fair. Like, I don't like. Uh, I don't put a lot of the people that like taught me like on on like a pedestal. Or anything like that. I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, like I worked for them. I learned. There's definitely people throughout that process that contributed like more than others. Really only a few, you know, like and they're and I'm still involved with them till like this day. You know, like if they're people that I thought were special, uh, you know, you just go to my PubMed and see people that I still write papers with to this day. You know, it wasn't it wasn't many. It was a few, um, but like, I don't feel like I was abused as a trainee. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that. I mean, I feel like I, I did a job. I worked like I was part of a team, um, but the buck didn't stop with me. And, 
you know, like as, as a person on that team that was like learning, uh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I was, I don't feel like I was abused or like inadequate, inadequately like compensated or anything like that. You know, like I, I enjoyed being a resident. Like I, I didn't live, I wasn't living like on, I wasn't living the high life, but I was, you know, I wasn't living a bad life either. I'm I'm like you. I I <laughs> I feel the same way. I I of course you do residency usually in your 20s and early 30s, and so you're resilient and and you know the sleep deprivation and you know the stress we had of being yelled at and all that stuff. I mean, I I look back on it. It doesn't it it didn't bother me. But one thing that one thing that I want to try and convince you of is that you should have more reference about this because. I remember a story. I don't remember the specifics, but we were talking and you were expressing frustration that our approach to medicine, our approach to critical appraisal had no chance. And I think it was one of your trainees who said, but but Dr. Foy, you taught me this. And now I'm at a university teaching my teachers, my my fellows that. And and it's like this branch. And so and so everybody you touch, it's like a tree. You teach three people and they teach three people. And it 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 kind of how I feel about Indiana. It's like we we when we when I meet other Indiana doctors, it's sort of like an Indiana approach. And and I think it stems from from that. So you should have more reverence about your role as a as an educator and the importance of the students. Who yeah, are that, that you know, that that brings a tear to my eye, really. But but he was a special guy. He's a special guy. Yeah, but they're they're probably okay. He was special, but there are other. <laughs> he, there are other he, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, All right, very good, very good. Well, I mean, I think that's good. It's been about an hour, and um, and we we didn't resolve the we didn't resolve the tension between uh <laughs> residents and going on strike, but there was no chance of that anyway. So I just wanted to get well. You know, when I when I heard that the other day, I was totally shocked. Why? I mean, I, that that was just, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I, I had no awareness of this at all at, at my institution. And I don't, I, mean, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's an issue there. You know, like, I don't think it is because I haven't heard of it. But like, when I heard of that, I was totally shocked. And you're an educator. You're dealing with it every day. Yeah, no, I. If that if that happens at, at at Hershey Medical Center, I mean, I guess it happens, but like I would I would be shocked, you know. Like I, I didn't appreciate that th this level of discontent, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, so you know maybe... So like I, I mean I hope it's not, you know, like maybe we're maybe we're different, you know, like hopefully that's not something at our institution, but well, I heard of that and I was just like you know, the person that that called me was at was at a different institution where I I've been in my life before, and I just I laughed. I was just like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "No." So well, I, I guess it I guess it's a real thing. I don't I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but but you know the other the other thing just just the other thing that you know just from being in practice and 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 and, and sort of losing control. Um, is that, you know, one good thing that could come from this is that, you know, doctors, if doctors 
could get, get could get together um that 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 could be a positive for the profession because i think one of the one of the things that one of the things that puts us a little bit at a disadvantage although i don't think we're at many disadvantages is that you know we 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 don't we we can't get together i mean i'm a cardio i joined a cardiology group of 20 and we got we stayed together but by the skin of our teeth i mean it was it was really difficult to get 20 cardiologists to agree on anything so to to get 100 people or 200 people to to agree that's that's pretty remarkable i'm going to tell you a quick story before we go here you know Please. that i am not i'm not somebody for the uh the credentialing process and i think there's you know from from like my my particular view of things you know it's just not it's not me but i was doing a lot i was doing a longitudinal knowledge assessment for abim uh last week and the answer to the question was transient global amnesia and i don't remember ever hearing about that as a as like a resident or a medical student or whatnot and i'm not I'm not kidding you. The next day, we diagnosed a person with transient global amnesia who also happened to have an MI at the same time. So, I, you know, I just have to take the, uh, I don't know what to say. You know, maybe maybe these things aren't as bad as I was, as I thought. I think they still are. But I'm trying to maintain a an open, you know, you're trying to deal with your Milton Friedman's view of the, I'm trying, of, of the AMA. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep an open mind. <laughs> excellent, excellent. All right, this has been a great conversation. Um, I I uh, um, I'm not going to edit it. I'm just going to put it up as a as the Sensible Medicine podcast. So thanks everybody. Remember, if you like this, give us a rating, write us a review, subscribe, all of that stuff. So thanks for listening. All thanks, right, Andrew. Thanks, man. All right. I'm going to...